Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Consciousness Review Radio Show. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Kent Nairburn, the author of Letters to My Son and The Wolf at Twilight and Neither Wolf Nor Dog, both of which won the Minnesota Book Award. Today, we're going to discuss his most recent work, Ordinary Sacred. It joins his other two books, Simple Truths and Small Graces, as the conclusion of a trilogy just filled with spiritual insights and inspirational stories. Welcome, Kent. I'm so delighted to have you with us. And I'm happy to be here. Well, now tell us a bit about your background. Well, let's see. The the short form is that I'm born and raised in Minnesota, uh, traveled around the country, went to school in a number of places, did graduate work at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley and at the University of California, got, got a Ph.D. in theology and art, did a lot of training in sculpture, uh, actually was wanted to become a religious a sculpture of religious images uh, in oh. a sort of a non-traditional form and studied in Europe, in Germany, and Italy, um, ended up coming back to the to the actually Pacific Northwest for a while, and then came back to the land of my birth, though much further north, and uh, up in the land of the pines and the lakes in northern Minnesota, where I had the interesting opportunity come upon me to go work on an oral history project in on the Red Lake Reservation, the Ojibwe Reservation, uh, in here in northern Minnesota, and that sort of changed my direction from sculpture to writing, and it didn't remove me completely from sculpture, and I certainly still think as a sculptor and see the world in visual terms, but the fascination of working among Native people and with Native people and dealing with their beliefs and their way of life uh, allowed me to travel down a road as a writer, and I've done that ever since for about 20 years. Oh, wow. This is very rich territory to the mine. Let's start with your Ph.D. in theology and art. That's an interesting combination. What led you in that direction? I had always been fascinated with human belief. It seems to me we're believing creatures more than thinking creatures. Our our belief guides our thoughts. What we believe, whether it be religious or otherwise, defines who we are, defines how we see the world, defines how we choose from the myriad of variables that are out there when we construct the reality that we see around us. And I had done my undergraduate work in American studies and was fascinated with belief as it expressed itself in the American experience. I wasn't quite sure what to do with graduate school. Like many people coming out of their undergraduate years, I was staring at a confusing welter of options and applied for, and after a misstep at Stanford, um, ended up at Graduate Theological Union, where they said I could be a practitioner of sculpture as well as a uh, as a theoretician. And I'd come to this because while I was at Stanford, I was uh, they had a very fascinating program in religious studies, but it was all from the outside. It was a comparative religion program. And I had applied there because I wanted to follow up on this belief, this interest in belief, and so I just wanted the broader scope of religious studies. Uh, a year at Stanford proved to not be a very good fit for a number of reasons. So they said, well, you need to do language work anyway. Why don't you go to Germany? 
So I went to Germany and said, I'll learn. That's what I'll do. I'll, I'll go to Germany, learn German in Germany. It's much better than sitting in a classroom in a Palo Alto summer. <laughs> so I did. I went to Germany and hitchhiked. I got off a plane in Amsterdam, stuck out my thumb, hitchhiked into the middle of Germany where I was told they probably spoke the best German and found myself sitting there unable to say a word, couldn't, uh, you know, do, didn't know what I had done, but had to make my way. In the course of that, I ended up uh, knocking on doors saying I wanted to do handwork. I figured out to say, uh, ich möchte handwerk machen, or whatever it was at the time. Basically, I you mean like, like little odd jobs and things? Anything, anything with my hands, because I figured if you work with your hands, you have to speak about objects. And thus you learn nouns, and, and you learn basic verbs, I want, I need, give, take. Uh, it was a chance to interact and have whatever I found, and I didn't know what it would be, would allow me to not just sit around trying to find people to talk to, but I would be working for for someone about something that they cared about. And I didn't want to be paid. I just wanted to do work with my hands. Well, as fate would have it, I fell in with a... Uh, I knocked on the door of a woman who had a... a she, oh, she must have been in her 50s. She had a shop uh, where she sold a batik, and she did batik. And she said, my son restores antiques, and maybe you should go talk to him. She could speak a little English. So I went down, and I held my hands out, tried to explain it to him, and he said, come and work with me. So it's a long way around to get where we're going, but it's, it's kind of interesting in a way. We, um, I worked with him restoring antiques in this little workshop uh, in Marburg, and towards the end of my stay there, I, I, I started wandering around these little museums, and they have in these German museums um, what they call Bauernkunst, uh, farmer art, where they had made old crucifixes and forms they didn't have any technical skills. What they had was purity of belief and purity of expression. And I looked at those and said, there's more belief and more faith and more honest spirituality in those than in all the teachings I'm and learning I'm doing at Stanford. Hmm. And I asked if I could begin to sculpt, if I could try to sculpt. He had a couple of old chisels and gave me a piece of maple and said, go to it. So I started hitting on that piece of maple and... I couldn't stop. It was the most magical experience of my life. You know, almost everything else I'd ever done had been driven by the clock. And in this case, no. I, I, time, time got in my way. I loved working it so much. So I, proceed, I finished a sculpture, a small sculpture over there, went back to the people at Stanford, and they said, uh, I said, I want to do religious sculpture. And they said, well, you know, we think you've had a mental breakdown. <laughs> can't do that. Uh, you Take off, you know, go go see what your life is all about. Well, I did, and through a period of time, ended up working with a, a Greek woodcarver in Minnesota one day, and ended up back at Graduate Theological Union where they said, yes, you can come as a sculptor, but, you know, you, you can practice, you can be a sculptor, who, or, and you can become, if you chose to teach, you can teach from the bench rather than from, you know, a desk. So I worked on sculpture, worked on the theory of religious sculpture, studied Donatello, Michelangelo, and Rodin, and just fell in love with the process. I, I did have the limitation that the, I often tell the people, the curse I give to people, or hopefully I don't choose to curse too many, but the curse that I give to artists, if, uh, if I really wanted to give them the two curses, may you be great, but not good. 
<laughs> I, I had moments where I was great, but I didn't have, I wasn't the natural. I didn't have the fundamental skills to do it the way that some people I saw who had much less understanding than I did, but had it in their hands, were able to do. So I stayed with it. I continued. I did a number of large sculptures that are going places. There's one up in uh, in Mission, British Columbia, not too far from you, in a monastery where I lived for six months to do a sculpture for them. I did them all out of wood. They were all pieces uh, carved from large trees. And that was really, the. though I had the doctorate, it was the sculpture that mattered to me. And no one really wanted someone who was a sculptor. No college wanted someone who was a sculptor who had a Ph.D. in uh, in art. And where were they going to put me? I, I was like I said, if anyone wanted what I did, I was the onlyest one around. <laughs> but, but no one wanted it. So uh, anyway, I stuck with my sculpture, and then I moved back to the Midwest, and. Took took odd jobs here and there. Drove cab, which was a very pivotal experience in my life. Drove cab overnight for a while in, in Minneapolis, and met my wife. And we moved up to northern Minnesota. And the opportunity came. Uh, I was trying to do my sculpture, and it was you know it was still religious sculpture. Yes, still religious. Yes, religious sculpture in the broadest sense of the term. Uh, I wanted to inhabit of forms with a spiritual presence. Like my doctorate was a, a sculpture of John the Baptist and an exegesis of John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I wanted to try to learn the man, learn, learn everything I could about him through a study of the gospel narratives and the historical context, and then try to embody his spiritual presence in a sculpture. In this case, that was a, it was a large... Uh, a large piece of uh, a large walnut tree trunk, about ten feet tall. But the, the, these were the. That was my approach. I wanted to put the presence of a, a spiritual presence. They became long meditations for me to create these spiritual presences embodied in a human form, uh, and that was that was the goal. That was what I was trying to do. And I was I was making a fumbling way with it, and I loved the work. But it really was not economically viable. And like I said, I had that limitation of not always being as capable as I wanted to be. I would have visions, I would have understanding that I couldn't put forth in forms. So anyway, little you know, short, uh, you know, short conclusion to all of this, I had uh, an opportunity came to do an oral history project on the Red Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota. And it appealed to me because in the course of doing the sculpture, I had learned something very fundamental and almost spiritually, what was very spiritually significant and almost mystical. And that was that as much as I would try to inhabit a tree with an idea, with a spiritual idea, the tree began to talk back to me. You spend six months a year with an object or with anyone, you're in a room with anyone, and you get to know that person very well. I would always work with chisels. I didn't want to use chainsaws or anything, so it was always with chisels, and I got to know those trees where, to the point where they talked back to me, and they made demands on me that imposed themselves on me rather than me imposing my own spiritual ideas or, or aesthetic ideas on them. Then 
they, like I remember one, I, there was one oak tree I always talk about that was the saddest tree I ever worked in. It, it probably had been diseased. It had grown in a very difficult place. And you could feel this with every stroke, just the way it resisted the wood, it resisted the chisel, the, the smell that came out of it, the feel. It, it, was, it was a heartbroken tree, and I just hated working in that tree. Then there were others that were joyous. Uh, some were very meditative. Different woods have different characters. And no one talked about this except the native people. The Iroquois would carve their masks in, li- in live trees in order to have the spirit of the tree in them. This kind of understanding drew me to native ways and native thinking. So in that opportunity to do this oral history project on this little isolated, well, actually very big isolated reservation in lakes and pines country in northern Minnesota came, I said, I think I'd like to go work with native people. Wow. And so I did. And then I'll just bring us, bring us to where the, how we get to the writing in the books, and then we can go from there. And that is the, Well, uh, hang on just a second, sure. because yeah. I want to tell people that if you've just joined us, uh, this is New Consciousness Review, and we're chatting with author Kent Nurburn about his new book, Ordinary Sacred. Yes, Kent. Please. Which we, we may get to ordinary sacred. <laughs> <laughs> or not, you whatever. And you get a $3 answer. That's, uh, that's uh, Anyway, so well, we'll get around to the books then. But I, I worked on the reservation doing oral histories and found that I had never been around people so grounded, so spiritually integrated as the Native people. And it was no New Age kind of mystical Native spirituality was just that their everyday affairs were infused with the the belief in the spiritual presence uh, in in all all of nature i loved working with them i loved being on their reservations and i when i left the when i left the reservation and the job i like sort of made a little promise to myself that i would spend the remainder of my life working to bring native spirituality and Native culture into our dominant culture, because that had really been the goal of my study of of religion early on, was to find an authentic American spirituality. And my feeling was and remains that that authentic American spirituality is something of a grafting of our Judeo-Christian and European tradition onto the innate spirituality of the land, which inheres in the Native people. So my writing has become an effort to explicate that in, uh, in to bring the native experience of mindfulness to our own Western tradition. And this little book is just my latest attempt in that. And and a marvelous attempt it is. Uh, it's interesting. Joseph Marshall, the the great Indian writer, said that uh, said about you that um, you offer a sensitive, insightful glimpse into the Lakota soul, a feat unattainable by most non-native writers. So that's high praise indeed. And, and now we see how you came, came by it. Um, you know, it's interesting. You talk about being a sculptor, and yet your writing is some of the most beautiful, graceful, poetic writing it's been my privilege to read. How did you shift from hammer and chisel to the dexterous use of the pen? 
I probably shouldn't have emphasized the sculptural dimension of the training I had because it was spiritual training in religious traditions and the prayer traditions of all cultures have always fascinated me. I'm, I'm much more attuned to reading poetry and prayer than I am to reading analysis or uh, or novels or or analytical text of any sort. And my dirty little secret is that I'm a sub-vocalizer when I read. <laughs> and when you read slowly, you tend to write slowly. And you write to be heard rather than to be thought. So you take that element and you add in the fact that my uh, commitment is to was to sculpture, which is a visual art form. And I try to write in pictures and I try to write with a melody that says, Musicality is very, very important to me in writing, just as I believe it is in prayer. Uh, as when I talk to kids, uh, very often I'll go to schools and talk to them, and uh, I'll say to them, one, one of the little, little little techniques I have with them is, uh, how many of you know uh, the Lord's Prayer? And if I'm in a school where they're allowed to know the Lord's Prayer, they'll say, yeah, they'll, they'll say yes. I'll say, okay, tell me the first part of it. I'll say, um, yeah. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. Okay, great. Good job, kids. Okay, how many of you know the nursery rhyme, Hickory Dickory Dock? We do. Let's hear it. Hickory Dickory Dock. The nurse ran up, or the mountain, the nurse. The mouse ran up the clock. Uh, the clock struck one, the mouse ran down, Hickory Dickory Dock. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you see how it is. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's the music of the language. And so that musicality is at the heart of my prose. It's I write slowly. I want it to be read slowly. If the rhythm is wrong, if there's something in the mode of expression that's not appropriate to the sentiment, it, I, I try to remove it. Mm-hmm. And so listening, that's one of the native rules in, of life is listening is the first rule in life. And I listen carefully. I listen to nature. I listen to music. And when I write, I meant it to be heard. And so it is actually a composition uh, in, in a musical sense when I sit down to write. That's an interesting observation that listening is one of the, the rules of life. So few of us remember to do that. We're so busy trying to get our own perspectives across. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, is that something that you, uh, you derived from your, um, from the native tradition, Native American, Native people's tradition? It fit well with uh, my own experience in life. I, I go back one step there to sort of, to sort of explain that one of the real seminal and formative experiences in my life was my father's job when I was young. He mm-hmm. was the director of disaster services for the American Red Cross in the Minneapolis area. And that meant whenever there was any sort of a disaster, a fire, a plane crash, a flood, a drowning, he'd be called at the same time that the emergency services were. And he'd have to go out to provide food, shelter, clothing to the people who were affected by the disaster. So I used to go with him because my father was a man of few words, and he, we both loved each other very, very much, but it was not easily expressed, so a lot was done symbolically. So he would bring me, he would say, come in the middle of the night and say, Kent, there's a four alarm on the north side. Do you want to go out along with me? 
And of course, I wanted to be with my dad. So this little 12-year-old would hop out and go along with his father. And we would get to some situation where there would be, oh, maybe some mother who had just lost a child in a fire and a drowning, and I'd be sitting there next to her where they'd put me to, you know, sort of assist her, and she'd be, they'd pull the child out of the water, and you'd hear this wail, and I'd have to try to console her. Mm. Or in one case, there was a woman, I remember this one always sticks with me, there was a woman in her 80s at a big apartment fire, and it was the middle of the winter, and so my dad put her in the car with me, and she'd lived on the third floor or something, and her, her cat was trapped in there, and she kept saying, my cat's up there, can you get my cat? That's all I have in the world. And, of course, I could do nothing, and the firemen weren't going to go back in there to risk their own lives to try to save a cat. And I'd be sitting there, and my job, if I were to do it right as this as this young man trying to help his father, was to listen and console. Mm-hmm. So I, I gradually came to realize that my own life and my own experience wasn't that significant compared to that of those around me. So I automatically without knowing it, fell into the world of being a listener and an auditor. And when I got to the native, uh, working with the native cultures, that's one of their teachings is the first lesson is to listen. Mm-hmm. Some of the cultures, they, you know, the Dakota south of here, they actually used to put the children in cradle boards. In many cultures, they, in many of the native cultures they do, they put them in cradle boards and put their bind their arms inside the cradle uh, board. So, you know, it's like, it's like you see pictures of those that they carry on people mm-hmm. on the side of the horse. And the arms are inside. And they want the arms inside so the child learns to be still and to listen to nature around it. They'll hang that from a tree, and at least in, 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 in passing days they did, where they would hang the cradle board from a tree so the child would listen to nature and listen to the winds and learn to live in time with the swaying of the winds. And this interest in mindful apprehension, uh, it, it fit perfectly with the way that I had, I had begun to grow up. And so when I found it, it was almost a resolution and a ratification of a way of seeing that was very contrary to our American way of claiming power and being a dynamic actor on the world. And it just felt good to me. And so I've I've always been a listener ever since I was little, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and an observer, clearly. Um, yeah. When when you look at the various anecdotes and vignettes in your book, the observation of detail and not only the, the detail that you observe, but the the beauty that you find within them that would escape most observers is just breathtaking. Uh, I, I have to say that I, I, I went through three or four tissues while I was reading it, you know, on the yeah, point. Do you have a favorite? Somewhat uh, embarrassing. Well, it makes me very happy to hear that. <laughs> it's good for us all to have a tear come to the eye now and then. Yeah. If I can, if I can make that happen to someone and not because they're appalled at what they're reading, but because it touches them, then that's great. <laughs> Did I have a favorite? I, I think I think the one um, about the um, the young boy who was clearly uh, handicapped, mm-hmm. um, who approached you on his bike, and, and uh, 
was just so pleased that you acknowledged his existence instead of making fun of him. And, and it was one, that was one of those stories. I mean, all of them are they have the same intent. They have the same purpose, and that's to bring an attitude of mindfulness to our ordinary days. They aren't meant to tell you how to live or how to, uh, to to give you any life lessons in terms of seven lessons to spiritual betterment because I think we're all profoundly, we live profoundly ordinary lives, but there are holy moments inside these ordinary lives. And all of the stories are really about me finding one of those moments in the most ordinary of affairs. And in that one, it was really just a, it was a little boy sitting here. I was in front of a library, and I was trying to read, and he just kept riding around me on his bicycle. And he he was bugging me. And <laughs> I, he, I, I hadn't paid any attention to him, but he's just riding in circles, and I'm kind of a misanthrope. I like to be left alone. And uh, finally I looked up, and he he... She looked at me with these mildly retarded eyes, if we can say retarded. I mean, that's what it was. He was a kid with limited mental capabilities, but a pure heart. And so I decided I had to engage him, and we started talking, and he asked my name, and I said, Kent. And it was like a revelation to him that someone would actually tell him their name, and he just kept saying, Kent, Kent. And he showed me his bicycle that he was riding, and he ended up riding off down the street saying my name as he rode away. So I walked, I walked down the street. It's a, it's a little town here, and I walked down the street just to see if he, you know, what his life was like. And I got up in front of his house, and there he was going in the house with his mother uh, who, and meeting his mother who took him in her arms, and he, she just rubbed his hair. And I looked at him and her, and I thought of my own son, who at that time was about 12, and how far how difficult it was for him to let us show emotion to him and thought what a gift you have and uh, i remember there was, there was a line that, that I, I that i ended up uh using and i i can't quote it exactly but it was something uh it was you know there's wine like sunlight and there's wine like blood and whatever uh, chalice we're handed we have to drink of it and that was sort of the Probably it was probably a more theological conclusion than I might draw on some of the other pieces, but it's just one of those moments where it started with me being upset, sitting on a park bench, and ending up having a moment of a mother and a child at a distance opening my heart to the spiritual dimension of life. Mm. Yeah. Uh, if um, you want to know who I'm speaking with, it's Kent Nurburn discussing his book, Ordinary Sacred. Um, what what did your father's toolbox symbolize for you? Why has it become so important to you? I write a piece called My Father's Toolbox because it, it it's, it's the object my father loved. Uh, it, it's really a story about what matters to us and what do we love and what are we passing on to the, to the succeeding generations of uh, this toolbox, it's an old green metal toolbox that's kind of a, a, an industrial green. It's not quite a military green. It's more of an industrial green that my father kept all his uh, hand tools in. And he kept it absolutely impeccable. He had everything organized. It's not very big. It's, you know, it's something you can lift and carry around with you. But he kept all his hand tools in and kept it impeccable and organized. And when he died... 
it it came to me as the only son, and I took it and I've uh, I've kept it, and I am not much for home repairs or certainly not for organizing. And it I, I use a tool that gets oily. I just throw it in the the toolbox or I. It, throw things in that don't belong there, old hammers, uh, rolls of tape, and it's become my toolbox in a way, but every time I look at it, it's a symbol of my father and that incredible love of family and order he had because it's shaped like a little house. And he'd come from nothing, and he'd been an orphan, and he'd worked his way up in the world, and he never achieved a great deal, but he achieved the family that he wanted and the few, the capacity to live a life that was not one of want, and he could, we could survive well enough. And anyway, so in this story, I just tell about how in trying to fix a light switch, which is almost beyond my capability, but I figured <laughs> I could do it, I go down to get the tools, and there's that toolbox staring at me. And when I put my hand on it, I'm touching the memory of my father. I'm touching his hand. And how important this is to me. He he always you know, he always said he wanted to do things for his kids, but he didn't have any money to pass on to us or anything. And the one thing he had was an autographed picture of Babe Ruth. And so he gave that to me, and I've given it to my son. And it's not as not this incredibly valuable thing that one might think, but it's worth something. But for him, he thought that was the thing he wanted to pass on, and. Yet it doesn't mean anything to me. It it really, really never meant anything to him. He didn't care much about baseball, but he had it, and it was something that he felt was of economic value that he could hand on to his his son, and by extension to his grandson. But for me, no. That I think about that, and I look at that picture, and I say, well, that's great. Maybe someday it will translate into you know a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars. But the thing that's priceless that you cannot put a value on is that toolbox because that he loved so i go through this whole experience with the toolbox and then at the end i just start to wonder what is it that my son will remember that i loved when mm -hmm. he goes through the things that i had so that's that's what the little toolbox is and it's one of those one more one more bit of meditation on the ordinary affairs of life and just sort of mindfulness about the mindfulness towards the ordinary yes yes you know, I was I was so moved by your story of the native people's funeral in ordinary sacred and and the outpouring of grief that seemed to be the culmination of what you called four hundred years heartbreak of a people. Do you think there's been any real progress in our attitudes towards these first people? Yes and no. Um, they have the, the my path with the native people has it hasn't been separate from my path and my spiritual writing but it certainly had a different kind of commitment and focus because working with people who have been wounded and badly served by an invading culture over the centuries has taught me a great deal and they in this last book i did the wolf of twilight where i really tell the story of an old man's search for his sister who'd gotten lost in the Indian boarding school system. Um, in doing the research for that, I came to realize that really what we're looking at with the Native people in their experience is a 
almost cultural post-traumatic stress disorder, that the dysfunction that you see in Native communities is the dysfunction of people who have had their whole history ripped from them, their language taken from them by the boarding schools, literally pulled out of them, uh, their culture taken away, being told that their grandparents uh, were going to hell because they were believed in heathen things. It, they have been devastated, yet over 400 years or 500 years now of our uh, occupation, they have survived. And at their heart is a core and a beauty and an integration. I mean, they, they, they embrace a larger sense of family. Uh, the uncle is the same as the father in many ways, and the aunt is, is the mother. The grandparents have responsibilities in the community. They are willing to talk about the sacred uh, at all times. There are ceremonies. You know, we, we get in situations, I don't know about your your friends and culture, but if if I get many times get in situations where there's people that want to say prayers before dinner, I'm a little fidgety. You know, it's not quite <laughs> right for them. Uh, the native people will bring out the pipe or do a smudging, and it feels totally integrated. Even the least the the least religiously inclined have this dominant inhering sense of the sacred in all of their affairs. This is coming back. This integration, this belief that there's power and spirit in every living thing is rather than that we are meant to have dominion over the earth which is our judeo-christian way is is the time is coming and the native leaders have said that you know our time is coming you don't realize that some of them say but the reason your people came here is to learn from us mm-hmm. it's been a long time until you've reached that point and i think that the time of listening is coming again because we i mean we are you know, whether we like it or not, we're a crumbling empire, and we didn't mean that to happen. We were, you know, we didn't create that. It just sort of happened uh, by good people trying to create a civilization and or reaching ourselves a bit and sort of losing its heart. And I think that the native people have much to teach us. We still don't pay honest enough attention to who they were, and they're definitely a sidebar in our culture and our historical understanding. But I think their voice is there to be heard, and my own belief and my own commitment is to making sure that it is heard because I think it's something that's going to be of value to us. You know, I observe the current political debate and how all the candidates, the Republican candidates, seem to be scrambling over each other um, to be more um, uh, fundamentalist, I guess, than the next. And... uh, and the, the 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 evangelicals and the the fundamentalist Christians, I think are are feeling a pain in our society of a lack of values, and you know whatever we might think of how they're um, uh, focusing this pain, um, I think we have to address it somehow and try and understand where they're coming from. Uh, Don't you feel that as a society, we are seeking to return to some kind of value standard and we just seem to be going about it a bit, I don't know if I can say this, but ass backwards? Uh, Well, well, you know, I I think you put your finger on something that we're, um, that we've bifurcated ourselves. And 
again, in 20 years of working with Native subjects, I've, I've gotten to look a little bit at what our American culture is and what it's done. Uh, I have a great sympathy and belief in an empathy to the extent that I'm able for all religious traditions. That's been, I, I don't want to judge anyone. Um, I will draw the line when I see a tradition that chooses to harm children and the powerless and say that somehow that tradition is not manifesting itself in accordance with the spiritual genius that's at its heart. But every tradition and every way of thinking, either within a tradition, like within Christian tradition, or in any of the other world's religious traditions, has a genius to it and an authenticity. And the fundamentalist push that we see in America has an authenticity. And this is why I say I think we've we, we've bifurcated ourselves, and the, re, the, the way that that's revealed itself to me is the utter fascination people have with Native spirituality. It's very often the liberals, and even the, uh, I, I don't want to put it in political terms, but the people who are inclined towards universal uh, acceptance of other spiritual traditions. And yet, if you push those people in terms of their own understanding of the way the universe works, they will disavow any sort of a creator as a motive force in the evolution of the human species, because it's like evolution uh, denies the existence of a creator. And if, you, if you're a liberal and you accept the tradition of uh, evolutionary reality, uh, unless you're one of the creative design people, you mostly say no. There are we work from first principles. We don't work from a first creator. The fundamentalists understand the need to believe that there was a creator, and they're angry that this has been thrown away. But their mistake seems to be that they insist that it's one creator the way that they see it, and that there's only one tradition that is manifested in. So they become uh, judgmental and exclusive. Whereas on the liberal side, we have thrown away the belief in there being a spiritual creative force at the heart of our human experience, mm -hmm. and are left with sort of a scientized reality. The Native people have both, and I think that's where the hunger comes from. So I have nothing, you know, I, I wish that when I look at the... At, the evangelicals and the fundamental people, instead of having a, a point on their spiritual spear that they're trying to get you with or to get you to accept, that instead it was a wide embrace of all spiritual traditions. But that, you know, that may come, it may, it may evolve, but I think that their impulse towards the spiritual is, uh, it, it's, it's commendable and it's necessary. And it, it does speak to a sort of a vacuum in the heart of the American, uh, American life. Yes, they, they have an either-or uh, rather than a both-and approach. Uh, and, and they, they just... It, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, actually. Um, I, I, think, I think if, they, uh, if, if we would all um, just adopt the principle that you spoke of earlier and listen to each other, it would be so different. Well, and we tie spirituality into a creative being so often. If you go to the Eastern traditions, uh, 
specifically Buddhism and Taoism, you don't find the idea of a creative being so much as a creative principle. Mm-hmm. And there, to have... Well, William James once said, in trying to understand God, we're like dogs and cats in our master's library. And that's sort of the way I look at us trying to understand the spiritual forces that are behind this mystery of life. And when you insist that it that it either be a definable being who is a creator or else it only be a series of first principles that have spun themselves out, you leave out this whole middle ground that perhaps everything in the world is imbued with spirit and our job is to celebrate it and to, because of our unusual situation in the, you know, in the, in the realm of being, to be stewards of it. And that I, th- I think you know, we have to come to this. We, we have to begin to value all of life and all of the life forms and all of the earth a little more significantly or we're going to end up looking at everything as too utilitarian and we're going to be the agents of our own demise. Yes. And it's like it takes the color and the, the, the gentleness out of life when you have such a harsh-edged view. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet politics are like money. They're kind of something you, you, know, you don't want to think about as the as a central element in your life, but you better pay attention to them or uh, they're going to bite you. Yeah. And people who say, oh, I don't want to deal in politics, I don't want to, because everyone's so negative and I don't like what's going on and the pots in all their houses and they're all the same, well, then you become a victim of, what's, uh, of what happens. You need, I mean, you need to somehow try to hold the light up in the darkness, and I commend anyone who does. I, I admit to being you know, more than a little frustrated with this uh, this group of candidates we have out there on the Republican side, and I, I go back and forth with my wife, who believes that Obama has done a great job, and say, no, I think he's squandered a mandate that he had. But, you know, it's an imperfect world and an imperfect system, and something about political reality doesn't bring out the best in people. So, I don't know. You know I, I get frustrated, but I figure we have, you know, we, we have to try to, you know, when you see good people, you have to try to raise them up as best you can. Is there an insight that you derive from being in nature that has particularly helped you through life? Boy, only the idea that nature is, at all points, a teacher. Now, I hesitate on that only because it sounds so glib and so simple, but that to learn the and this is where the native people have helped me, to learn the power of an oak tree standing on a hill, what it will teach you, to, as opposed to a pine in a forest protecting all the young birch that are growing underneath it, to, as the Taoists say, to look at the, uh, at the inexorable force of moving water and how you can move gently around obstacles and gradually... Uh, wear them away. Uh, this idea that nature has teachings for us, and it has to do with our capacity to sit still and look. I mean, we're so much a people of movement, and I first among them. Uh, put me in a car and let me drive, and that's what I love to do. But 
if you sit still and listen to nature, listen to the sounds, look at the teachings that a stone has and the animation that a tree has, the, the different colorations of seasons, the movement of a day from its passage from morning until there's that crescendo and then that moment where it changes like the shifting of the tides to the coming of the afternoon and how that's all of this is really a metaphor for our own human life and so nature not as something passive to be observed but as an active teacher that only when we divest ourselves of our belief in the importance of our own self are we really able to hear so that's really been what i think i've gotten most from spending time in nature let's go back to your book for a moment um was there one story that um, affected you more than others? I think the book really was by accident built around the story of the of the funeral, uh, the native funeral. Mm-hmm. The two the two stories that I think hit me most were that one, and then the story of the legless man uh, flying yes. kite outside of Gallup, New Mexico. And I'll mention that first because what that was was I was with my family and we were traveling from Monument Valley and I was uh, so smitten with the great spaces and this sort of grand isolation of my own spiritual vision, really feeling constrained and unhappy with the presence of family around me. Uh, And thinking that my spiritual yearnings were bigger than the reality I was in and came upon, by accident, when we got lost in the town of Gallup, a man sitting in a, uh, a dusty field, holding a kite on a string. He was sitting in a wheelchair, and uh, he would make that kite dance and flow in the sky. It looked like a, a symphony conductor, the, the way that the kite was moving. And I looked at him, and he had no legs. And that was a moment of epiphany for me, where I said, here I am feeling constrained, by a beautiful family and here's a man whose freedom is reduced to holding a kite on a string and he's more at peace than I am Mm. every time I think about that very often when I when my world seems too small or I feel like I deserve better somehow that man becomes a metaphor for an honest humility in the face of uh, in the face of the obstacles of life and then the native funeral which is a very different story about when I attended the funeral of one of my uh, students on the Red Lake Reservation, is really about the way that community and family comes together. I buried my own father not too long before that, and it was a military uh, funeral, you know, where they you drive up in a military cemetery, they shoot off some guns, they stand it under a canopy for a little while, they take away the casket, you don't get to see the person buried. And then he ends up in a hill of tombstones that like like little white mushroom humps uh, stretching as far as the eye can see. You never see the person buried. You're never part of it. And then to go to a native funeral where everyone is brought up, in this case, in this particular tradition, everyone is brought up around the drum. We were all told to pour our grief onto the drum. And everyone who has grief from something, from the loss of a pet, from the loss of a family member, from the loss of a loved one, from the loss of a dream. And pretty soon we're all pouring our grief onto that drum and 
he, in essence, the, the one who died, takes the grief from us, and they bury the casket by hand. Mm-hmm. Take it in the back of a pickup truck, you take it out to a promontory, in this case a promontory overlooking the lake. His friends have dug the, the grave by hand. The casket is lowered in by ropes. Everyone pushes the dirt in. Even the grandmas get a shovel, and they push a little bit in with the end of it. The kids push a little bit in. People get down on their hands and knees, push the dirt in, and you literally uh, bury the person. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a feeling of family and a feeling of wholeness that I had never really, that I don't experience anywhere else. So those two stories are really stories about what, mean, what it means to have family, what it means to be present to the spiritual moments in everyday life. And they, they rise to the surface in, in retrospect. In that and that's exactly what your book conveys. It conveys a marvelous sense of family, and I commend it to everyone. Kent, your, your website is kentnerburn, K-E-N-T-N-E-R-B-U-R-N dot com. Right. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today, and I commend your book to all our listeners. Well, I certainly hope you pick it up. It's one of those that I think travels uh, gently over deep waters. And, Indeed. Uh, it's Indeed. meant to be carried in a pocket or a purse or a, a backpack and to be drawn upon when there are moments of, uh, you know, when you're feeling distant from your own spiritual taproot. Exactly. You learn just a uh, little light to be shown on the ordinary moments so you can shine it on your own. And, uh, I appreciate the chance to be with you and to be imagining my new home on the Pacific North in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> sometime in the not too distant future. We'll be so happy to have you here. All right, thanks so much, Mary. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Howard Martin of the Heart Math Institute and he will tell us all about the Global Coherence Initiative. I hope you'll join us for what should be a fascinating hour. We're going to close our show today with the track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. This is a growing group of musicians who use music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week we're featuring The Great Unknown by Darius Lux from Los Angeles, California.
Home indeed. That was The Great Unknown by Darius Lux. In his songs, Darius writes about the struggles we all face in determining who we are and who we should be. You can check out his first ever music video and find out more about Darius and his band at DariusLux.com. That's D-A-R-I-U-S-L-U-X.com. For more great music or to join the PMA, go to PositiveMusicAssociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. To discover more fascinating books, films, authors, and events, check out our website at ncreview.com. You can leave comments on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ncreview. And if you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll tell your friends. I do hope you'll join us next week. So until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>